What is ivermectin? It was first discovered in 1973 and has been approved for human use since 1987, with more than 4 billion doses distributed worldwide. The full story of ivermectin begins with Satoshi Omura in the early 70s. Working as a microbiologist at the Distinguished Kitasato Institute, he was searching for new antibacterial compounds. He's collected thousands of soil samples from all over Japan to find and isolate these new microorganisms. One sample proved to be very promising. From soil that was taken very close to the Kiwana Golf Club just a few hours south of Tokyo, Professor Omura and his team were able to isolate a new organism. Through a process of culturing and fermenting the organism, they soon found that it produced a very active class of compounds called avermectins. The story of ivermectin has been an incredibly positive and impactful one, with worldwide recognition of its benefits to humanity over the decades of safe and widespread use. COVID was a global health emergency, and this prompted many doctors and researchers to investigate existing and established drugs to repurpose. That singular sample of soil and the microorganism discovered within has proven to be endlessly giving. All right, guys. Uh, good evening. <clears throat> um, my name is Pierre Corey, and I am your host, sitting in for Betsy Ashton, who unfortunately had to miss tonight. Um, slightly under the weather, not COVID, not serious. Uh, she'll be back, but um, I figured I'd jump right in. And so, as you guys could just see, that was the trailer to um, just a really cool, I, I think, an impactful short film uh, that we're going to premiere tomorrow night. So please join us. Um, the link is in the chat. We're going to do YouTube Live. Uh, me and Paul are going to attend. We're going to be on the side doing a little, we'll, we'll, we'll chat with you. We'll answer maybe Q&A or something. But anyway, we'll be there watching with you um, and uh, trying to interact. So uh, tune in tomorrow night, <clears throat> 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, link in the chat. Um, we're going to jump right in. So what we're doing tonight is um, <clears throat> I just recorded a lecture for a conference. It's a brand new lecture that I did. Um, it's called the War on Repurposed Drugs. I mean, kind of a theme that we've been on for a while, but um, I just want to say that <clears throat> over the many months, it's, you know, people have warned us. I think Chris Martinson said it first. You know, he told us that this is no longer a data argument. And, and, it, and you know, as soon as he said that, it kind of clicked because, you know, for a year now, <clears throat> We've been presenting data upon data upon data for a number of medications, not just ivermectin, a number of repurposed medications. And every time we see the other side or the agencies either ignore it or distort it, <clears throat> you know, I think in the beginning we thought it was like they just don't get it. They can't see it right. We need to help them. We need to guide them. But you know what? I got to tell you, it's much more ominous than that. Um, it, it's not that they're dumb. 
It's not that they don't understand, is that they're willfully suppressing and distorting the evidence around repurposed drugs. And so I did a lecture just showing the kind of myriad ways in which they do that. Um, and we've had a front row seat to it. Uh, we live it every day. Um, it's not a happy topic, but it's one that we've uh, that I've gotten expert in. And the lesson I want to say before we'll start the lecture, it's about 32 minutes, is <clears throat> You know, I think we all struggle in striking a balance in tone between like attacking and pointing out the failures and the sinister actions of the other side and striking a positive one, which we do have a lot of positivity, which is that, you know what, the narrative is different. We know this is a treatable disease. We have really effective protocols. If you start them early, you're prepared. You can get a provider. Um, you can get through this. And, and we have, you know, many hundreds of doctors around the world who've really had very few patients go to the hospital and none die. And so if you have a, an effective uh, a physician who knows early treatment, follows not only our protocols, there are other protocols as well, um, we can get through this. And so I also want to be positive is that we have answers. I just... Tonight's lecture explains why those answers aren't widely understood and widely championed by the rest of the healthcare system. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of resistance and attacks on that. So, so with that, um, <clears throat> I'm going to play a recording of a lecture that I did today. It's called The War on Repurposed Drugs in COVID-19. Um, and afterwards, we'll do a Q&A, okay? Hello, good morning. My name is Dr. Pierre Corey. I'm the President and Chief Medical Officer of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. Um, and uh, I'm giving a talk today, uh, not on actually any single therapy involved in the treatment of COVID-19, but um, on, on a topic in which I've unfortunately become an expert on, and it's not on the therapeutics. It's actually around the corruption surrounding data of efficacy of therapeutics that are in competition with or inconvenient to those of, of massive financial interests. Um, I call it the war on repurposed drugs. It's a decades long war and it's accelerated in this pandemic. And so let's go over the, the who, why, what, when, and how. You guys know who does this, who is against repurposed drugs and why they are. It's immense financial profits. And in this pandemic, with the rush to, to, to bring to market all of these vaccines and antivirals, those financial interests are massive. And who stands to lose, which it's the people, people who could benefit from really cheap, cheap off-patent drugs and the war on the hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, fluvoxamine, and there's soon to be many others. Anything that's cheap and effective is going to be destroyed and the science is going to be distorted. Like I said, this has happened in a number of disease models over decades, particularly in the United States. How do they do it? And this is what I'm going to talk about tonight. But it's essentially that there's massive financial in, uh, influences in a number of institutions. You name the institution dealing with healthcare, and there's a massive financial influence. It starts with the health agencies, which are essentially in this country equivalent to big pharma. There's a revolving door, and each one works for the other. I'm sorry to say that the public interest is not primary. I came into this pandemic believing that to be true. It is not true. I have immense amount of evidence to the contrary. The secondly is international health agencies are equally co-opted by financial interests. And once you have those major agencies 
all of the other institutions in society tend to follow suit. So the medical boards, the medical societies, and even the pharmacy boards. And so you see them all doing the bidding of these massively compromised and captured agencies. And then that even extends to the journals. The journals depend on immense amount of mon money from the pharmaceutical industries. And so they are completely under the influence. And that's been described by numerous editors to high impact journals over years now. And then now in the pandemic, it's control of media and social media, and it's absolutely atrocious. All we're doing is we're surrounded by censorship and propaganda, and it has to stop. You want to know the real deal? Here are the books. These books both describe the decades-long war on repurposed drugs. I highly recommend them. In fact, I think this is mandated. If you're a scientist or a physician trying to navigate your way through this pandemic, you must read this book, these books to know what you're up against. I've already detailed who are those national financial? It's the huge vaccine lobby and all oral competing medicines. Those are multi-billion and probably a market in the hundreds of billions if you extend that forward. Um, I'm gonna go quickly through these slides because I think a lot of them I just wanna be visual and I just wanna hit points. And I'm just gonna take you through the slideshow of what I've seen and what I've learned throughout this pandemic. Keep in mind, the disinformation is something that industry has done for many decades, okay? It was championed and first perfected by the tobacco industry, and they know how to manipulate information. And they do it called something called the disinformation playbook. There are five main tactics that they use, the fake, the blitz, the diversion, the screen, and the fix. And I will show you examples repeatedly of how they're doing this in this pandemic, but they are literally doing this to, 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 to suppress science that's inconvenient to their interests, okay? They've been doing this for years. Merck did it around Vioxx, hundreds of thousands, over 100,000 people are estimated to have died in Vioxx, another drug of Vandia, which caused a lot of uh, uh, harm. And we are just still living through a decade long pandemic of opiate uh, induced deaths in many of our young people in this country. Again, that is propagated by pharma and is all based on disinformation that opiates are somehow safe. And they literally co-opt our health, our public health status. In order for it to be successful, we need to be complicit, which is we need to be ignorant and we need to be uh, believers, which is you have to believe in the overall good faith of these agencies and journals. I used to be a believer. I am no longer now. All I can see around me is corruption and influence. I'm sorry, but unless people understand that these agencies have been co-opted and we come up with a new system, they're going to continue to wreak havoc. Let's start. Look at what has been tested in this pandemic that's shown to be effective. If you know what a forest plot is, this uh, middle gray line here is the line of zero effect. To the left is everything that's been shown effective. It favors the intervention. Some are more potent than others. But look at to what's in play in the United States. Everything I've circled is a high dollar item. Everything here is a single dollar or less than $10 in cost. None of them have been recommended. If you look at the US system, Bamlamimumab, Kazavirumab, Molnupiravir just got approved last week, Remdesivir and convalescent plasma. High ticket, high expense items, all routinely uh, recommended. Paxlovid, you guys know, is going to be recommended very soon. But look at all of the other repurposed uh, drugs. None of them are in play. Now you get why. This is absolutely absurd what's going on. Even very high impact drugs, extremely low cost. Look at ivermectin, 67 trials, 49,000 patients. And we're still discussing whether it's effective or not. It's absolutely disgusting. 
Look at the NIH. This is just it. This is what they're literally saying. They're saying don't use anything to prevent, especially don't use hydroxychloroquine, and especially don't use any other drug for post-exposure prophylaxis. Aside from monoclonal antibodies, you can sit home until you turn blue, and then in the hospital you can use a toxic and fraudulent drug called remdesivir, or you can use a tiny low dose of dexamethasone. The reason why it's a low dose, I'm being very cynical here, is because that's all they tested, and I'll tell you why. They wanted to leave room for all of these very expensive ibs and abs. This is inadequate immunosuppression. Um, and so therefore you need added ones and they tack on very expensive drugs in order to do that. And they still haven't figured out long haul, which is just ridiculous. Um, now let's talk about some of those tactics, right? So um, medical research, look at what, what's happening with, with, with how they control the narrative and how they get things approved. It's all about creating the church of what I call randomized controlled trial fundamentalism, RCT fundamentalism, this belief that you can only find truth in some massive pharmaceutically conducted double-blind randomized controlled trial. This is absurd. It goes against one of the, the, the most important observations of, of uh, evidence-based medicine, which is on average over decades in thousands of trials. When you look at observational controlled studies, versus prospective randomized studies, on average, they find the same conclusion. And yet we're constantly being told and reminded by these evidence-based medicine experts that we have to avoid uh, listening to observation controlled trials because of the confounders. Absolutely absurd again. Do you guys want to know what the confounders are in randomized trials? Which is corruption. I'm sorry. But randomized controlled trials have as much flaws as the observational. On average, they reach the same conclusion over decades. And this is what they want you to do. This is a system that I believe is really preferentially created by the pharmaceutical industry, which is the regulatory and approval process is based on big RCTs. I call this big science. And so if you can only have everything rely on big RCTs, it also means that they can control big RCTs because you know who funds them or has the funds for them? Only big pharma or big public health agencies or academic medical centers. That's what BHA and AMCs. And then only the big journals will publish those big RCTs done by those big, uh, 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 big entities. And then only the medicines in the big RCTs will ever get recommended. So they are literally controlling the things that get regulatory approval and that are adopted to widespread practice. Anything that doesn't have money that can get a big RCT or get into a big journal is dismissed and distorted and considered to be uh, insufficient evidence or low quality evidence. And it's, and it's absolutely dismissed. This has to stop. They are literally manipulating you into using these big ticket items and avoiding highly effective and low cost drugs. Keep in mind the pharmaceutical industry knows this. They spend over 10 billion in Canada and the US to fund some 90% of the randomized controlled trials across the world. Just in Canada, they spent a half a billion on clinical trials back in 2004. And compare that to the Institutes of Health Research, which did a 31 million. So just know how influential they are in research. Um, and I can also talk about how the decades of looking at research studies, those sponsored by pharmaceutical companies, on average, are 86% of them are positive independent entities doing them only 50% are positive. So any pharmaceutical company that shows an efficacy of a drug is inflated. And they have many, many techniques for inflating that, that estimate. So even those that are positive, I don't know what to believe anymore. Here's an example. Look what happened when COVID broke out. 
the U.S. Active Program, this wonderful, quote unquote, public-private partnership to develop a coordinated research study, study involved BARDA, which is one of our de Department of Defense, the CDC, the FDA, uh, and then Warp Speed, as well as the European Medicine Association. Look at this private partnership. Look at all of these financial entities. And look at Bill, Bill and Melinda. So they're in the nonprofit section. That is absolute crap. They are not nonprofit. They are literally a representative of the vaccine industry. So do not believe that is a philanthropic organization. There is there's a mountain of evidence to show that they are not. And we have to stop considering them to be nonprofit. Now, look at what this produced. This public-private partnership, which one do you think had the bigger say? Was it the public or the private? Let's go to round one of what they funded as far as research. Number round one, active one. Do you guys see any repurposed drugs? You do not. Round two, do you see any repurposed drugs? You do not. Round three, do you see any repurposed drugs? You do not. Round four, ah, they actually started to test anticoagulation. The problem was there's no novel anticoagulation on the market, so they didn't get to use to test that. But they did study Eliquis, which is under patent. So, so there you have it. Um, and then round five, no repurposed drugs. Associated trial, no repurposed drugs. And finally, active six. I think probably due to the outcry, which I hope the FLCC makes happen, I think they feel forced to study it. But boy, are they taking their sweet time. Do you see how our research efforts are being co-opted? Keep in mind, they refuse to look at studies in prevention, specifically in ivermectin, both the NIH and WHO, they don't look at prevention trials. I don't think they want to look at this. Do you guys see this? This actually bests quite a few of the vaccines, especially over time. This was in alpha, but consistent, large protection against transmission, but yet the world ignores it. I'm sorry, but this is as plain as day, and it's causing death around the world, especially places that don't have vaccines. We know this is an effective and reasonable alter alternative. Now, let's talk about case studies. So I'm going to go through really quickly hydroxychloroquine. So they killed that in 2020. So that was their, their public enemy number one. The pandemic broke out. The powers that be realized that they could not have an effective oral medicine that was approved across the world. Even though it was known safe, it's been around for decades, and even though there were studies showing it was effective in prior coronavirus pandemics. Many doctors very early on, either at the bedside or in studies, they noticed that if you gave it really early, patients did well, they recovered quickly, and they didn't descend into the hospital. But however, hydroxychloroquine threatened the big players. One was in the pipeline, and one was very close, so remdesivir and molnupiravir, as well as the vaccines. So you guys will not believe what happened, but it's very well documented in this book, right? So in the book called Real Anthony Fauci, it's chapter one, Section two, I really recommend you, you, you read it because it actually references and shows every action taken to bury hydroxychloroquine. Number one, two major governments suddenly made it prescription only. So, they, they, so from making it over the counter, they made it prescription only. They're trying to restrict its use. They didn't want you to figure out that it worked. Massive quantities suddenly were deemed past 
their 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 safe lifetime and they got destroyed. There were reports of this in the United States, huge stockpiles, Zambia as well as South Africa. Social media gets into the game, right? They, oh, this is all owned by the same financial influences. They have tentacles everywhere. Social media started scrubbing reports of efficacy of ACQ, and Dr. Fauci in a, in a news conference asked whether. It might be effective as prophylaxis. He literally shouted, the answer is no. And the evidence that you're talking about is anecdotal evidence. This is what they say about any evidence for repurposed drugs. It's insufficient, anecdotal, or low quality. That is their mantra. They do it repeatedly. And it seems to work because most doctors believe it. And then in the most ludicrous action I've ever heard, even when this happened, I could not believe it happened. I actually thought they were stupid, but it turns out they're not stupid. They're actually quite clever. They're just corrupt. But in the US, they restricted the use of hydroxychloroquine to a phase of disease in which they knew it wouldn't work. It's an oral antiviral, and they were giving it 10 days into disease, just like remdesivir. And then you saw what they started to do with the journals. You guys know about the Surgisphere scandal, an absurd paper, how it passed peer review and got published. Who knows? But it had its impact. It showed that uh, hydroxychloroquine did work and that the data was fraudulent, but however, the, the, the impact stuck. And then studies were designed with these incredibly uh, incredible doses that were near lethal. The, the control arms, the intervention arms actually, were doing worse, dying more and having worse outcomes. So it was quickly stopped and it was quickly portrayed as a toxic drug that was ineffective, yet it was used in incredibly high doses only in the hospital phase, and suddenly you saw editorials and attacks on this repurposed drug. And finally, Fauci, actually, the one hope that people had was just to do really good outpatient trials, large trials, which are good signal, Fauci canceled them. So the early treatment RCTs of reasonable doses that were well-conducted, which, which is to say early treatment within days of treatment, he canceled them. Yet dozens and dozens of observational trial trials showed that they were, and you also had tons of epidemiologic evidence. The countries in which used it widely, almost as a standard of care, they did far, far better. But again, this was called correlational, confounding. Um, they weren't testing enough. Uh, they, they came in with every excuse to tell you, don't believe this slide. It's absolutely absurd. Ivermectin, I've had a front row seat to this one. This is everything they've done. I've already listed the things that they do. The journals, the media, the health agencies, even the pharmaceutical companies got into the game. Briefly, Merck, right in the beginning, Satoshi Amura asked them for product and he says he wants to try it because we know it's an oral antiviral. 10 years of studies showing it's an oral antiviral, and yet the company says it had no intention of conducting trials. Interesting move to do in a pandemic with a known, uh, with a drug with a known antiviral properties. The totality of evidence is overwhelming, overwhelming, in vitro, in vivo, safety of pharmacology, the case series, the clinical experiences. I mean, over, we have like, I think, 69 controlled trials. 32 are randomized, 16 are double blind. We have meta-analyses. So many of them are, are absolutely consistent, showing repeated effects on mortality, time to clinical recovery, and hospitalizations. And then the health ministries with programs, it's overwhelming the results that they're achieving, yet we're told not to use it. Some of you may know that I gave testimony in our own Senate. That's a year ago today. Today is December 8th. 
2021, I'm still at war, still trying to convince the world that this drug is highly effective and must be globally and systematically deployed. I really hope that in 2022, I'm not sitting in this chair, still yelling to the world that they have to listen to the efficacy of a repurposed drug. February 4th, Merck is Merck is starting to feel the heat. They know we're on to them. They know we're figuring out this work. They, they do this. They post this on their website and the entire world and media actually listens. They listen to a pharmaceutical company with direct financial interest against their former drug because it's off patent and not profitable. They put out these three statements with no supporting evidence, no scientific authors, nothing. They just say it doesn't work and we don't think it's safe absolutely absurd and people actually gave this some credence um the uh the studies i'm not going to go over them. this 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 talk is not about the studies but if you look at these forest plots peer you know i'm, I'm told all the time it's if it's not peer-reviewed um it, it, it it's probably not helpful peer-reviewed non-peer-reviewed all show the same observational randomized all show the same early treatment better than late treatment peer-reviewed, my clinical experiences, everyone I talk to around the world who's used it in their practice, they find the same, which is mitigation and symptoms and rapid recoveries when you use it. It's not even in question. The health ministries that did it, Mexico City, they published their preprint, 120,000 patients, over 50,000 treated with early ivermectin kits, 76% reduction in hospitalizations. Absolutely profound. This has nothing to do with the study. They were all well-matched and they're showing you get better and you get better quickly. This has been shown in numerous countries. Tokyo, Japan, the, the head of the Tokyo Medical Association tells the physician, start using it. These things are out of control. And what happens? A precipitous drop occurs. And now they have the lowest numbers in the pandemic. Indonesia's FDA gives IVM an emergency use authorization. At the same time that interest in ivermectin spikes, what happens? A peak and a drop. And they're enjoying some of the lowest numbers they've ever had. Uttar Pradesh is a literally a miracle in public health. It is one of the most historic achievements. They've effectively eradicated COVID from their borders. In September, 67 of their 75 districts had no cases, yet it's not mentioned in any major newspaper or, bull, or, or bulletin. Major media coverage, no mention. Trusted, that's because of the Trusted News Initiative. Have you guys ever heard of this? These are the major news agencies around the world early on they came together to combat the spread of misinformation. Guys, get what, guess what constitutes misinformation in this new paradigm? Any mention of efficacy of a repurposed drug is misinformation. Do you guys think that's by design or it just happened by accident? It's absolutely ludicrous, the world that we're living in. Then we start to get hit jobs. I do a 25-minute interview. I show all the evidence and data, and this is what gets back to us by the Associated Press. We, we filed a, a journalistic ethics claim, a violation claim against them. They fought back against us. They, were, they supposedly did an investigation, and they stood by this reporter. Absolutely uh, criminal. Um, the, uh, and now we, there's all sorts of uh, attacks, and so now they're hiring. The BBC hires uh, some, some schmuck researchers for somewhere who have a horrific bias against ivermectin, and they start to question all of the trials, calling them fraudulent irregularities, as if there's no irregularities in any of the randomized control trials, folks. Have you guys seen the Pfizer uh, whistleblower reports? And have you seen the kind of shenanigans that they pull with these pharmaceutical trials, changing endpoints, uh, disappearing data, um, using very highly selected populations? 
Here, now they're attacking the ivermectin trials. This is all absolutely a war. And you know what's funny is that C19 early, which is a compendium of all studies on all therapeutics in COVID, they even entertained these guys. And they said, fine, you want to complain about 20 of the 66 trials? We'll take them out. Look at this. This is in 66, 66 studies. And then they said, here's the improvements with exclusions. They take out almost 20 of the trials, same benefit, actually even higher. Same thing with mortality, with exclusions, RCTs with exclusions, same benefit, even better. Peer-reviewed, non-peer-reviewed with exclusions, same benefit to even better. It doesn't matter. There are so many trials showing efficacy. You can complain about as many trials as you want. The signal is there. Um, sorry. And then, then beyond that stuff, now they start retracting papers. Tess Lorries passes peer review. She's an expert meta-analysis and systematic reviewer. Hers gets retracted, not published. Ours passes through three rounds of of peer review and gets retracted from frontiers in uh, pharmacology. One of my colleagues, Dr. Puyo Degani, he does a beautiful paper on the mechanisms of action. It's published, gets 500,000 views, and it gets retracted. Um, this is continuing throughout science. Um, and the um, um, there's much more retraction. So any, any paper that shows uh, that there's damage, there's uh, dangers of the lab leak or against vaccines, retracted, retracted, retracted. Professor Nikolai Prostrovsky, who did some of the most important work showing that this is almost definitely not a natural origin of a virus, he could not get his papers published, rejected everywhere around the world, even without review. And then what does get published? Only studies without statistically significant result. Poorly designed, underdosed, short duration studies, probably designed to fail, who knows, but all we know is a negative trial will assure, negative trial of a repurposed drug will get you into a high impact journal. Doctors start to rebel, an open letter complaining about these flawed studies that are getting high profile attention that ricochet and rocket virally throughout the media. See, we told you ivermectin doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, then more repurposed drug papers get retracted. This was uh, a whole uh, series of editors who were, who were editing a special issue on repurposed drugs. They saw so many shenanigans that the, uh, the, the journal was pulling that they resigned en masse. Um, sorry, my uh, slides aren't really moving very well. Um, and, then, and then keep in mind, um, then you start to see fraudulent papers. So really crappy meta-analyses, even appearing in Cochrane. Everyone thinks Cochrane is somehow purer than the driven snow. They are not. This is an absolutely ridiculous systematic review. It included 14 of the 24 RCT results available. Does not include uh, observational. I already talked about these RCTs. And then you could see numerous positive trials are rejected. Carvalho's study, Schwartz's study, and then, then you're seeing our papers get retracted. It's absolutely fraudulent what's happening in these journals. They're all under the influence. The WHO, no stranger. They say in March 31st, despite numerous trials showing large mortality benefits, they say they're not convinced. We do not recommend to be used outside of a clinical trial. I wrote a white paper showing the irregular actions that they took, the fraudulent actions. It's absolutely not subtle if you read that document. Compare that to what they did in the past, pre-pandemic, with diseases such as scabies and strongloidiasis. Back then, you only needed 10 RCTs, 852 patients, no mortality benefit, you got approval. Same thing in strongloidiasis, five RCTs, 
591 patients. And here you can have mountains and mountains of data they will not approve. Um, NIH, they can have any number of weak or conditional recommendations. They don't do it. Same thing with WHO. They could easily give a conditional recommendation. They somehow cannot seem to arrive at that. And then they start going after scientists. They start publishing papers showing uh, you know, the suspected irregularities or ethics around uh, the conduct of trials. Dr. Hector Cardavia, one of my favorite physicians and one of the true advocates and one of the real experts in understanding and treating COVID from the beginning, he got almost every single thing right. His tireless efforts in doing this prophylaxis study, he gets attacked, his character gets attacked. It's absolute nonsense. So this is the, the fraudulent study where he answered all of their questions and they literally uh, uh, published mistruths and inaccuracies. And this is actually Doctors to the Rescue. This is actually a very supportive article which shows exactly what the real deal was and gives a factual accounting. I will have to take a couple of minutes here to talk about another disinformation tactic where they literally co-opt and corrupt researchers. They have captured Dr. Andrew Hill. It is now documented, it's inarguable. And it is why I don't talk to him and I'm absolutely furious and I absolutely have zero respect for that man. But what he has done is probably caused more death and destruction than I can imagine. In this book, there's a transcript of a phone conversation that he had with uh, expert researcher Tess Laurie, because Tess knew that he was pulling some funny stuff and that there was absolute inaccuracies and tons of misrepresentations in his pre-printed meta-analysis, which he posted in January, which was a total uh, departure from everything he had said before. And in that transcript, he admits that Unitaid, which is essentially funded and run by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, well-documented, that is their organization, that they wrote the conclusions of his paper. He allowed them to the right. It's like having your funder write the conclusions of a paper. By the way, he admitted that it's also well-documented that a week prior to that posting, his university, where he works, where he gets his contracts, was given $40 million grant to study infectious diseases, and that was granted by Unitaid. This is not subtle, this is corruption. And since then, he's continued to wreak havoc. He now is doing nothing but disinformation. Remember, the definition of disinformation is to create doubt when there is none and to distort the science that's inconvenient to the interest. That is exactly what he's doing. And when you see what he's doing, you must understand that. This is someone who somehow his university got a $40 million grant. Look at his behaviors. He's now retracting because of one complaint of fraud of one trial. Now he, he redoes his papers, highly positive meta-analysis, and he throws everything out. He only included 12 RCTs because he threw out anything with moderate to high bias. Keep in mind for decades, all international guidelines for WHO, they can include low, moderate, high bias. It doesn't matter. You use everything. And now he's left with four RCTs. Now he says, oh, I can't see a mortality benefit anymore. Absolute nonsense. And now he's going after the prophylaxis trials. Absolutely ludicrous. If anyone listens to him ever again, that's absolutely insane. He admits to being, to being co-opted and corrupted and influenced by money. Um, even the chief scientist is using Merck as a defense for her opinions. Well, guess what? They're actually serving notice, a criminal complaint against her for her actions. Now, we as scientists also, not only Carvira, we get attacks. Our organization with Professor Marek 
absolutely attacked everywhere. Social media, media, news wires, um, PayPal, <coughs> where we process payments, Twitter, Shopify, doesn't matter. And then individually, we're all almost all unemployed. Paul Marek is about to get fired. His privileges were revoked. He's buried in false accusations. I was fired two weeks ago. Uh, Flavio Cattagiani, you know, one of the, the true world experts who's done amazing work throughout the uh, pandemic. He's now falsely accused with patently obvious and disprovable uh, accusations of trans uh, transgressions, as well as Joseph Ferrone, whose hospital is now under threat. And Umberto Maduri, one of the most, one of the greatest careers as a physician in my specialty, he's now retired. He was forced to retire due to attacks. This is no joke. And in the US, this is what happened when our advocacy actually started to show success. This is the number of prescriptions per week, 90,000 per week at the end and the middle of August. And that started to make the other side really, really nervous because despite all of those actions that I had outlawed, they were losing the war. Look at this. We were starting to win. The physicians and the people were starting to win in the United States. So then what did they do? They started to invent that people were overdosing, that this was a toxic medicine and that people were taking animal forms and they were overdosing. It was absolutely ludicrous. These stories went viral around the world. Look at this he headline. One hospital denies Oklahoma doctor's story of ivermectin overdoses causing ER delays for gunshot victims. Absolutely just insane. And then everybody jumps in. The CDC sends out a health advisory. Then the federal Federation of State Medical Boards, they start threatening to punish doctors for misinformation. And then all of the AMA, the pharmacy boards, they call for an immediate end. They can't do anything. And then... <clears throat> The FDA starts making joy jokes. Everybody's conflating ivermectin with a horse medicine. They do it repeatedly and consistently. This was a preconceived PR campaign, which they launched when they saw that they were losing the war. And then here is your friend, Anthony Fauci. Poison control centers um, are reporting that their calls are spiking in places like Mississippi and Oklahoma. Uh, because some Americans are trying to use an anti-parasite force drug called ivermectin uh, to treat coronavirus, to prevent contracting coronavirus. Um, what would you tell someone uh, who is considering taking that drug? Don't do it. There's no evidence whatsoever that that works and it could potentially have toxicity, as you just mentioned, with people who have gone to poison control centers because They've taken the drug at a ridiculous dose and wind up getting sick. There's no clinical evidence that indicates that this works. I, I mean, just insane. And then after that, four weeks later, now it's revealed why they were attacking it. Voila, Merck launches its pill. And sometime, and one month later, Pfizer launches, launches this pill. They launch it with press releases promising high efficacy. Uh, Molnupiravir versus ivermectin, the usual story, right? Dangerous, high cost, one study and done versus 60 and not considered. This is a, this is a drug with no long-term safety, with lots of long-term safety concerns. Um, and then fluvoxamine, you guys see what's happening with fluvoxamine. It has one large observational tri control trial, two really large, two really large, well-conducted, high-impact journal randomized control trials. Um, uh, showing its efficacy safety. Now you have a preprint showing it has a large mortality benefit in ICU patients. And yet what is happening, right? What happens? So 
The Lancet trial, large randomized control trial, the TOGETHER trial, testing fluvoxamine in Brazil. They actually reviewed this. They updated and reviewed their guidelines on fluvoxamine. This is the IDSA guidelines. And they still somehow, despite all of that evidence of efficacy, they still recommend only in the context of a clinical trial. I thought the rules were if you get a big RCT, a proper RCT, and it shows a positive effect, you're supposed to approve it. That is true for novel, high-cost, patentable drugs. If it's repurposed, they don't follow those rules. They throw the rules out the window. I literally rest my case. This is a highly treatable disease. It's treated early. There's numerous repurposed molecules. However, all of them are buried in corruption, and this has to stop. We have to tear down the structure of these agencies. We have to somehow interrupt the, the incredible and pervasive uh, uh, influence of the financial interests of pharmaceutical companies. And with that, thank you. I don't know, Paul. What else can I say? You know, so that was the lecture for tonight. Um, you know, I think uh, some of it is, uh, you know, a redux. I, I've said some of the stuff before, but, um, you know, I, I tried to put that together, Paul. It, it, you know, it, we got to stop pretending that this is about the data. You know, in fact, I'm tired of presenting lectures on the data because it just doesn't matter. Um, you know, as soon as you put it out there, a good, serious lecture where you've carefully curated, compiled, analyzed data, you show the studies, the nuances of the studies, what they conclude, and then you just get buried with this nonsense on the other side. So anyway, um, Paul, should we do some questions? Yes, let's do okay. some questions. So I'm going to take the first one because I did this is up my wheelhouse. So uh, from Ralph Carter, <clears throat> Japan is at near zero cases and deaths. Is that ivermectin at work? So I'll tell you why I love the question is that we, I had to spend time getting corroborating evidence that it was ivermectin. And he, here's my arguments as to why I strongly believe is ivermectin. And I do want to be completely honest with you. I was initially, I had a very uh, skeptical stance just because I had no data showing that it was ivermectin. But here's the following. Number one, the vaccination rates going into that surge that occurred uh, in August and September were already quite high in Japan. They were about 72 as the surge started and around 78 as it was at its peak. So there's no evidence to show that the vaccines could, uh, could uh, uh, answer for that massive reduction in cases and hospitalizations. Number two, the timing of the Tokyo Medical Association's chairman, when he said he made like a public call to all the doctors, and the doctors heard it, by the way, he said, it's safe. It's, you know, the preponderance of evidence shows efficacy. I think we should, now he's being cautious because he doesn't want to, you know, piss off the agencies and all that. And he's just saying it's reasonable to use. Well, very soon after that, and Juan Chimia, you know, an analyst that works with us, he provided me lots of evidence, and I, I would say there's also some Japanese um, um, citizens as well as doctors who on Twitter shared long lists of clinics in Osaka and Tokyo, which immediately started advertising uh, that they were prescribing ivermectin for COVID. And then when you look at the timing of the announcement and the peak of cases and hospitalizations and that rapid decline, that is a really tight temporal association where we've seen in many other regions where they made a public announcement for doctors to use. Same thing happened in Indonesia when the FDA approved it. And, and so we had evidence, and then we have other evidence 
where other people showed us that they that you could import it from India. The shipping times were relatively brief. One of them showed us the tracking uh, of one of their packages from India, and and people would write to us saying that they were easily starting to import it. So we know that there was a large groundswell. And then the last thing is on that slide, right before, right around the time that they announced to use ivermectin, there was the highest interest in ivermectin on Google in Japan. There was massive searches being done on ivermectin. The population were interested, and I think they sought out afterwards. So I think to me, there's enough corroborating evidence to say that Japan is almost solely due to ivermectin. The other thing is, if you look at the cases and hospitalizations in Japan, it's like near zero now. And we've seen that in places which had really, really uh, strong uptake. Um, so that's my answer to that question. Paul, you're going to get the next one from Susan Chaney. Well, just to follow up on, on that, you know, I think there was a recent report in Bangladesh that similarly had widespread use of ivermectin that they kind of eliminated COVID. Their vaccination rate is about 10%. Yeah, it's very low. But the, the challenge with Bangladesh, which I don't understand, is they also had a really bad surge. Like they were, they were seemingly using lots of ivermectin early, were controlling for a while, and then they lost control in Delta. But like you said, they seem to be under control again. And I don't know if, if there was another public uh, information campaign around it, but they also have very uh, well-controlled cases. So um, the next question is, is the prophylaxis protocol going to change with the Omicron vir virus? Uh, what about the frequency of taking it? So, you know, I mean, based on the data we have, I think people should continue doing what they do. Um, you know, I think there are a number of people, a number of elements that are really important, especially going into winter. Vitamin D, and we're going to talk about vitamin D. I think it's absolutely essential that people get the vitamin D levels up. I think that's critical. I think the oropharyngeal sanitization is absolutely essential. Every household should have an antiviral mouthwash. People start need to start taking melatonin at night. Um, so I think there are lots of things people just need to do. There's no evidence that um, while it's highly transmissible, you know, uh, it does not seem to be as severe, but I don't think people should put down their guard. They should do what is just common sense and do whatever they can so that they don't get COVID. That's what you've got to do. I don't want to get COVID. I don't want you to get COVID. I don't want my friends to get COVID. It's a bad disease. You need to do whatever you can. And people need to empower themselves. The things people can do to reduce their risk of getting COVID and the severity of COVID. The most potent is vitamin D, just such a simple thing to do. I like it. You know, a similar question, I'll take this just because I've been battling this uh, recently is, you know, several viewers are asking, can you please offer some explanations as to why some people report experiencing breakthrough cases of COVID while taking ivermectin and the eye mask protocol? And I have to tell you that I, I, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. There are definitely breakthroughs. And I've, I've actually had uh, several lately that I've been treating some people close to me. Uh, one was on twice a week and broke through. Another one was on once a week. Another one was on once a month, which is not ideal. Uh, 
Um, but first of all, a couple of things I want to say about that. One of the reasons why we think there's breakthroughs is the much higher viral loads of, of the Delta variant. Um, it seems harder to protect against. Number two, we don't really know what the perfect and the safest uh, prophylactic dose is. Remember, we started to get some breakthroughs around July, around early August. I was a breakthrough. And that's when we changed it to what we thought was still safe and likely more effective. We changed it to twice weekly. Is the right dose double the dose? Is it more frequently? We don't really know. And I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the following is that although there are breakthroughs, right, just like with vaccines, there's lots of breakthroughs. Although there are breakthroughs, the data from Brazil, and, and Dr. Katajani has, has shared this with us numerous times, and he has a paper coming out showing this, is that even if you break through, your course is generally one that's more favorable. You generally avoid hospitalization, you avoid the pulmonary phase, and it's a bit easier to treat. Having said that, I won't say that I've had perfect uh, and easy streets with everyone that's broken through. I've had a couple which were a little bit more difficult to treat. And I got to tell you, it's only lately. Um, and this is kind of before Omicron. And so I, I don't know that we have perfect answers, Paul. I mean, we're, we're using the best clinical judgment we can. There's no guarantees, but we do think that your course is clear clearly going to be better, the better protected you are with the things that Paul said, um, all of the other elements, as well as ivermectin. It's not going to be perfect, um, but it should guarantee to preserve your health in the long run. Okay, so I think the ahead. point is there's no magic bullet that, um, you know, that all of them have their breakthroughs. But I think what what's important is it's multimodality, not one, you know, uh, the mectin itself should not be used alone. You want to make sure that you're taking your vitamin D, oropharyngeal sanitization, which it just makes so much sense because it decreases viral load. You're targeting where the virus is. So I think it's it's a combination of of interventions to reduce viral load. And there's no there's no perfect there's no perfect drug. Yeah, I want to add to that. I liked about the viral load because contrast that with Uttar Pradesh, right, where they had systematic early treatment. Everybody exposed in the household got a couple of doses and all the healthcare workers did. And when you do that, the time the viral clearance is lower. So you have less viral load. So, for instance, some of these people are breaking through. It's my hypothesis that they're being exposed to someone with very high viral loads. If you have widespread prophylaxis and or early treatment, I think the general average viral load that you're going to see is lower and it's easier to protect. I mean, Paul, if you look at that result in Uttar Pradesh, I mean, they literally had almost no active cases after months of aggressive use. And so I, th- I think that's probably one of the reasons is they were able to control the overall viral loads in, in those who carried the disease. Yeah, you're on fire, Pierre. You have to on guess. fire. Okay. There you go. So All I right. think it's whatever... Let's switch gears. I like viral this. Viral load. I like it. So um, here's a kind of a cool question. Um, I'm in a good mood tonight, so it's easier to answer tonight than some nights. But Pierre, uh, and I'm going to add Paul, how do you and the FLCCC team manage to keep motivated and optimistic? Uh, question, it's a David and Goliath scenario, and do you believe you will win the battle? 
I'm going to say we don't always stay motivated and optimistic. I think Paul and I are emotional and sensitive guys. I'll just be open and honest. And if you saw us on a day-to-day basis, we're like, um, you know, a sine wave. Um, we, we definitely go up and down. But I will tell you what sustains us is that that question, do you believe you will win the battle? I'm constantly reminded, the FLCCC is constantly reminded, Paul's constantly reminded that we are winning. There are so many people that are being helped. We hear it directly from them. The amount of people who feel that they've gotten better, gotten better quickly, the amount of countries. I mean, right now, 39 countries recommend the use of ivermectin. And again, we're not only about ivermectin, but I'm talking about that specifically as far as our impact. Um, And that's like 28% of the world's population. And so we know we're helping people all around the world. When we focus on the U.S. and how captured and corrupt it is in, in this, it's a capitalistic society, it's very, and, and all the attacks on us in the U.S., I mean, that that's the stuff that's happening at home, and that's demoralizing. But then we just got to look outside the country and see the, the global impacts that we're having. So I think ultimately the truth will prevail. You cannot hide it forever. And I think what motivates and myself is the support we get from our troops and the recognition that we get that people's lives are being saved and people's lives are changed. I think that's what most profoundly affects us is that we know we're making a difference. And I think that's, that's what keeps us going because we are winning. We are winning and we will continue to win. Um, Next question, Paul, you can take this one. What changes should be made to the IMAS protocol for transplant patients? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think people who immunocompromise, and it doesn't really matter what for whatever reason, if they're on immunosuppressive therapy or transplant, they need to do everything in their power not to get COVID. So they have to act responsibly. You, 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 you want to protect yourself. You don't want to get COVID. And um, unfortunately, many of the immunosuppressive agents have uh, inter- drug interactions with ivermectin and other drugs. So one has to be really careful. I think that behavioral modification is really important. You, you have to be smart. Um, and I think you, you need to take your vitamin D, uh, and the gel sativa, all the safe things that you can take. Um, and, you know, I think do what you can to make sure you don't get COVID. Because yeah. in, when you're immunosuppressed, it's, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, and that applies to people who vaccinated as well, because the vaccine does not work well in people who are immunocompromised. You know, renal transplant patients, even with vaccination, have an enormously high um, risk and morbidity with COVID. So I think you have to be very careful. Um, If you're immunocompromised, you you really have to take this seriously. And, and, you know, that question, I'll pair it with the next one, kind of, uh, because what Paul was saying, you know, for transplant patients, the one thing is that ivermectin interacts with some of those transplant meds. So you have to be very careful with them. Ivermectin may not be the best candidate for that reason. Next question is, why do you prefer ivermectin over hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID? Yeah, so you know what I was actually going to say, you know, in patients in whom 
you know, uh, ivermectin may not be ideal. Hydroxychloroquine is, a, is an alternative. So, you know, in transplant people, I don't see why you can't use hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. And the other one is there's that condition called pregnancy, which happens to, to, to quite a lot of people. Uh, I think to you too, Pierre. So we, we don't like to use ivermectin in pregnancy, but according to the FDA, uh, hydroxychloroquine is safe in pregnancy. Yeah. So uh, I, I mean, think... Yeah, I, I, I don't like to use it in pregnancy, although it's considered safe, at least at parasitic doses in the past, it's considered safe. But you're right, hydroxychloroquine is a better bet. L let me ask uh, a little deeper of the question that why do we prefer ivermectin over hydroxychloroquine? I'm going to tell you that I believe that the data shows hydroxychloroquine is much more time dependent. It really is effective in a shorter window. Um, it, I think it rapidly loses effectiveness. And I got to tell you, in my experience, maybe because who I am and where I sit, by the time people get to me, friends, family, friends of friends of family or friends of friends of colleagues, I have a wide circle that, that, that I treat. Well, it's pro bono. I'm probably up near 200 patients over the pandemic, but they generally, no one's getting to me by day three or four. You know, oftentimes it's day five or six when they're not doing well. And so um, I like something that's that's going to be active in the early antiviral phase and as well as the uh, anti-inflammatory phase. But but hydroxychloroquine is 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 an alternative early. Um, the early trials, uh, the, you know, the summary of the trials show pretty good efficacy. And so um, and then in some patients, comorbidities, you could even consider using them in combination. So. Um, I'm, I'm not against it. I just think it's more time limited. And then the prevention um, uh, for prophylaxis, uh, the, uh, the sum total of the data shows ivermectin is a better prophylaxis agent. And so um, we do have a slight preference for ivermectin, but we don't discount the utility of hydroxychloroquine. Mm, you're, on, um, you're on fire, Pierre. So I think Pierre's right, um, surprisingly. So uh, the, the nice thing about ivermectin, which, which makes the truly astonishing drug, is it has both antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties at the same time. So that I think it's much less phase specific. Obviously, the earlier, the better. But as people are transitioning into the inflammatory phase, you know, ivermectin has an important role. And, you know, we hear these stories of people, you know, on death's door, in the ICU who turn around with ivermectin. And clearly it's the anti-inflammatory properties of, of ivermectin. Yeah. All right, and then the uh, I'm getting the last question of the night here, which is we have iver, ivermectin, but we are not taking it preventively due to lack of access and affordability. We have enough for treatment, but not prevention. We are following the FLCCC preventive protocol using all of the other nutrients and measures. So what are our risks regarding the Omicron virus and is Delta still the main threat? So let me take that, Pierre. I think that's a good strategy, you know, because, um, you know, if you have a limited supply of ivermectin, you want to keep it for early treatment. That's because as Pierre said, the most important part of COVID, once you get COVID is early treatment. That's, that's the game changer. So I think if there's limited supply, it makes sense to do all the other stuff, you know, to prevent getting COVID and then limit or keep in reserve in your kit at home for, for early treatment. 
Um, I think that is a rational approach. Would you agree, young Pierre? Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, we still are, are being cautious. We want to know more about the Omicron variant. The data and the reports that we get is that no one's saying that it's a, a more, you know, deadly variant. We don't get data that it's filling hospitals. It seems to be milder, and I hope that holds up. Um, so the one that I'm worrying about, the one that I'm battling, it seems to be the Delta. I mean, and I, I've had quite a few patients reach out to me. I'm managing, I think, about six or seven right now. And so, uh, and I don't even have an, a patient practice right now. So, um, you know, I still think the main threat is Delta. The one thing I want to say about that, about early treatment, because I've had people surprise me with this mistake, but I've literally had people wake up feeling ill and they've dismissed it as a cold. I'm going to say it again. If you wake up with anything suggestive of a cold or a viral syndrome, it's COVID until proven otherwise. I, I, I would I would treat, then test, but you get yourself uh, tested. But don't, don't dismiss it as a, as a routine common cold because um, you're going to fall behind in this disease. All right. Absolutely. I'm gonna, we, I think you know, there's no such thing as cold or flu. If you have a flu-like illness, it's COVID. Treat it as if it's COVID. And even if it's not COVID, the treatment is very effective against influenza or other viral infections. So assume it's COVID, treat for COVID. Sounds good. All right, let me share my slides. This is the FLCCC's Healthy Holiday Gift Guide. This is the gift from Paul and I and our, and our colleagues. It's a gift of a healthy immune system. So we're trying to get you guys ready for winter. Um, what we're trying to do is we're going to do a little campaign between now and winter on social media where we're going to dive a little deep and give you some you know, information and instruction on how to use um, you know, really the over-counter elements, really try to give you agency and the ability to best protect yourself uh, if you get sick and from getting sick, you know, ways in which uh, to boost your immune system using evidence-based methods. Um, for instance, we'll start, uh, I think, in the next day or two with vitamin D. You know, just, you know, the, the high points, right, is that Paul already mentioned it, is that this is really critical. All the evidence seems to show that the one thing you don't want to do going into the winter, going into COVID, is you don't want to be vitamin D deficient. I think it's reasonable to get tested. I would reasonable to come up with a supplementation protocol. You can work on it with your physician. You know, we have a generic one, but we can, we're not testing people's levels. And I think everyone's a little different. Their level of deficiency might be uh, worse um, uh, or, or better. And so you really want to avoid deficiency. And, and if you get sick, you want to make sure that you're on an aggressive protocol with the more active forms. And so um, um, I th we think that's a key part uh, to preparing for winter in case, God forbid, you were to fall ill, right? Um, and then also we're back online. Remember I told you all the attacks on the FLCCC, but we had like some sort of company Teespring. It wasn't Shopify. I made a mistake. I guess they're okay. They didn't attack us. Everybody else in the world did. But uh, some company called Teespring, they whacked our store because I guess we're misinformationists or some sort of evil people. Um, but we have a new vendor and we have a new store. And it's really, it's just about fundraising for our organization, which I think does really great work. 30% um, of the proceeds uh, go to the FLCCC. Um, and then there's a special law launch, 10% uh, off. And they got really cool stuff, man. You guys got to be sporting your hats. If you're part of the FLCC Army, I got to get one of those hats. I'm going to be sporting that this winter. Um, we got T-shirts, really cool jackets. 
Uh, stuff for the baby. Come on, get the babies, uh, get them learning about health the right way. Get them early. Um, and then obviously uh, uh, cool little T-shirts for for men and, and uh, pretty young women. Um, and then last thing, uh, nurse feature of the month, April. Um, she's the owner of the surgery studio and the Surgeon's Advantage in Dallas, Texas. She started a website offering wellness kits and educational information. She's getting in the game, just trying to be helpful. She created the COVID education booklet um, using our protocols and then care kits, including vitamins, even offering a nurse's hotline. I mean, that is an FLCCC Army member, Paul, right? That's one of ours, man. We like that. I think uh, that's the kind of people that we like and trust. And so um, we appreciate her efforts and really good job. Um, and then last but not least, we remind everyone that we are a nonprofit organization. Um, continue to help us help you. Um, uh, your donations are great. I got to tell you, we, we really have been appreciative of it. People are out there. They really, apparently they like us because it shows up in the donations, um, but uh, uh, we can always use more. Remember the other side, they got some pretty deep pockets. So uh, uh, remember that if you want to give or, or can give. So um, uh, thanks for everything. And um, I think with that, we're going to say good night. Um, maybe we'll leave you with uh, the, the trailer for the movie tomorrow night again. Does that sound good, Paul? Sounds like a plan. Are you excited for the holiday giving, the nine uh, nine over-the-counter elements of boosting your immune health? It's, a, it's a, the nine days to Christmas. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Santa's so, going to be very um, healthy guy, and he's going to be really healthy. But you know what? Santa's a little bit overweight. So yeah. He, he you needs know, to make sure he checks his vitamin D you know, levels. If, if he gets COVID, you know, I got protocols for guys like him. Um, they're yeah. a little bit uh, more aggressive. I use more elements at higher doses. So I could take care of Santa, but it, he's, he's going to ask a little bit more of me than, than your average bear. Yeah. But we'll get him through. And uh, good night, everyone. <laughs>